Open your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Today we study verses 31 to 37. I thought about going further. We printed it in the bulletin, but we're stopping at the end of the chapter. Mark 7, 31 to 37. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at verse 31. Then he, that is Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more that he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever and ever. Amen. Father, we now pray your sovereign blessing. As we study your word, Father, bless him who speaks, those of us who hear, Lord, let us hear your voice. Let us see the grace of your wonderful son, Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. It's curious that in a passage that concludes by praising Jesus for doing all things well, that it begins with Jesus going the wrong way. Mark says Jesus, verse 31, returned from the region of Tyre, and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, Galilee is a good distance southeast of Tyre. So if you're going from Tyre to Galilee, you go southeast. The problem is that Sidon is due north. And so it's saying that Jesus, to get to Galilee, he went the other way. He went to Sidon due north. Now, given that they were traveling on foot, this diversion was no small long cut. It would have lengthened the trip by undoubtedly many weeks. And yet we should not think that Jesus made some kind of navigational error during his sojourn with his disciples. But we should note that despite the brief treatment given by Mark, Mark gives a travel log, but he doesn't really talk about it so much. Uh, It's very clear that this period of Jesus' ministry, we've been seeing him departing from the areas where Jewish people lived, and he's going into the Gentile areas, that this is a considerable ministry uh, event during his time. Uh, scholars, I think, estimate, maybe, I think correctly, at least plausibly, that this trip, which goes north into Tyre, goes around Sidon, actually it's not done yet. He comes back to Galilee. He's going to go back up to, to Caesarea Philippi. That it was as long as eight months in his ministry. Now, why did he do that? Well, he did it to focus on the discipling of his disciples. Uh, Recently, we've had great controversy, as usual. Most recently, the scribes and Pharisees were assailing and accusing Jesus because his disciples weren't following the ritual cleansing uh, prescriptions, and Jesus rebuked their, 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 their mechanical view of holiness, and he gave great teaching on that, but there's more controversy, there's more hostility. We already know that they're they're conspiring for his murder. And so he pulls away, not only to get away from that, but in order again to nurture the faith of his disciples. Undoubtedly, Jesus anticipates the storm that's brewing. When he gets back, when this is all over, 
things pick up. The pace picks up, and we're, we're headed to the cross when this season and his ministry is over. And, and he wants to prepare the disciples. He wanted communion with the 12 men he had summoned to follow him. And he wanted to strengthen them towards faith. In fact, the value of this personal ministry is seen at the end of chapter 8, where Peter finally gives the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God. That is the the benefit. He is leading them to saving faith. I think it's likely that few Christians today find themselves able, or at least think that way, think that we're able to take an extended break from our routines for a time of focused communion with Christ, maybe through concentrated Bible study or prayer, that kind of thing. But Jesus' example with the 12 suggests that if we did, we would find the investment to be worthwhile. We learn from Jesus' sojourn outside of Judea that he wants to spend time with us. Do we have time to spend with him? Do we make time to draw closer to him? That's what our Lord wants. The travelogue suggests that Christians should consider breaking away from the tyranny of our schedules and our careers when there are opportunities to invest in our spiritual growth. Well, they arrive back in Galilee, and again, it seems that this period is not ended because when he returns to Galilee, we're told he goes through the region of the Decapolis, Now, that's the Gentile region of Galilee. On the other side of the lake, the Decapolis, the ten cities, they were the loose league of cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, that was Gentile regions. And yet even there, being back in Galilee and being close to where he performed so many miracles means that the ministry resumed. People started coming to him. And one of them was brought, verse 32, was a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And so the man's friends brought him to Jesus and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. Verse 32, they trusted, given his track record, that that would be sufficient to heal this man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. Now, as Mark has been recounting the various miracles of Jesus, all the Gospels do this. We've already noted that these are not random acts of kindness. There's a theology being presented here. There's a picture. These are vignettes. They're pictures of the great redemptive work for which God's Son came into the world. We've seen, for instance, the casting out of demons. That's happened a lot. What does that show us? It shows us that Christ came to deliver us from the dominion of Satan and of evil and sin. He he breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. He conquers Satan's reign. Uh, We saw in chapter 1, a leper. Remember the leper? It's such a dramatic passage. And Jesus put his hand on the man and the leprosy went away. That was a picture of the corrupting effects of sin. Our our fallen nature and the inward corruption that makes our lives miserable and, and, and ruins us. And Jesus has the grace to change who we are, to change us on the inside. That's the picture of his redemption. In chapter 2, a paralytic, remember the paralytic was let down through the roof and, and Jesus says, rise, take up your mat and walk. It wasn't just a, an act of mercy for that person, but it shows how Christ, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he overcomes the spiritual inability that accompanies our total depravity. That's what's being shown there. In all of these ways, he's, he's showing how the ways that his saving ministry overthrows the reign of sin, enabling us to believe, follow, and be saved. Now, along these lines, the deaf man brings another facet of this picture. 
Here he represents how fallen mankind has become unable to hear God. Fallen mankind does not hear the voice of God. Donald Gray Barnhouse writes, This man with his handicaps is a picture of the human race. In Adam all sinned and became deaf to the calls of God. Now that is true. Men and women, sinners though we are, are not in fact abandoned by God all through history. God has been calling man to, to repent and believe, to come back. God's been proclaiming mercy. His prophets, you think of all through the Old Testament, you have the prophets, what are they doing? They're speaking for God. They're speaking of his grace, his call to repentance, but the people did not hear them. Why? Because one of the effects of their fallen condition was that they were deaf to God. They could not hear. And that, that continued through the time of the apostles. It continues today. The church is proclaiming Jesus Christ, but the unregenerate world does not hear. Why not? Because sin has made them deaf. You know, it's typical when a Christian is saved, I think particularly adult converts, they'll often say, I never heard the gospel before. Well, they may not have heard it, but it was probably preached to them. It likely was friends had been witnessing. In fact, in most of our cases, uh, when we finally come to faith, there's a whole series of people who've been praying for us and witnessing to us. We say, I never heard it before. Yes, but it was being preached. I heard of someone recently told me the story of their own conversion. They were driving a long distance and they were in the middle of nowhere. They were falling asleep and they turned the radio on to stay awake. And the only station they could get was a, a sermon, a Christian. And, and so they did. They hit the reset button. Search. Get off that. They turn. See, see this, this deafness is willful. It's culpable. It's, it's, it's our fallen nature that will not hear and therefore cannot hear. And so they kept it, but they hit search and the thing would cycle all the way around and go back to the sermon. They didn't want to crash, so they listened to the sermon and they believed that they were converted to Jesus Christ. Uh, we, I never heard it before. That's because sin, the fall, leads to deafness. Barnhouse gives the illustration of a, of a radio set that's been damaged, and God is transmitting, if you follow the illustration. But it's the radio that is the problem. It does not have the capacity to hear those frequencies. So it is for man. I, I think of the illustration of William Wilberforce, that important abolitionist political leader in England in the early 1800s, great evangelical, a disciple of John Newton. And uh, his best friend was William Pitt the Younger. William Pitt the Younger is a remarkable figure. He was prime minister of England in his 20s, and he's a great political leader, and he was also an atheist, and he was a, a very opposed to the gospel. And Wilberforce is witnessing him, praying for him, always trying to get him to go to church. And one Sunday, probably to get him off his back, William Pitt the Younger says, I'll go to church with you. So Wilmer Force, you know how it is. He's praying for him. And they go to church, and it's a guest preacher, and he's a great preacher. I mean, his name's William Cecil. And, and Wilberforce was thrilled, and the sermon was just tremendous. And afterwards, they're walking out, and Wilberforce says to him, what would you think of the sermon? And William Pitt the Younger said, I couldn't understand a word of what that man was saying. See, this is the problem, and there is no remedy for it except for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. See, we're reminded here again that salvation is by sovereign grace alone. How could it be otherwise when the, the, the effects of the fall are that we cannot hear? I think of 1 Corinthians 2.14 where Paul says the man without the Spirit not only doesn't get it, doesn't understand, but he is not able to. In our fallen state, we are deaf. We have been, the, the sin, the, the fall has 
has affected us so that we cannot hear, but there is hope because of the sovereign grace of God in Jesus Christ. He, he, he gives the power by his grace, indeed by his word, that we are able to hear. J.C. Ryle says he can give the chief of sinners a hearing ear. He can make the vilest of men speak of spiritual things and testify the gospel of the grace of God. By the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we hear the gospel and our tongues are set loose to praise God and profess faith in him. How often when Jesus was teaching, you'll hear him say, let him who have ears hear. He often says that. And they don't hear. Why? They don't have ears. He says in one Matthew thirteen sixteen, he says of his people, blessed are your ears for they hear. By the way, that means that if you're able to hear, if you believe the gospel and you embrace it in faith, that means you're born again. That could not have happened if you were not born again. God in his mercy desires mankind to hear his voice and call upon him in faith. And so he sent Jesus. He opens the ears of the spiritually deaf. He loosens our frozen tongues to his praise. Now, apart from this most important aspect, that this man's condition is a picture of our fallen condition and Christ's redemption is a picture of that. His healing is a picture of redemption. It also was just a terrible affliction for the man to suffer. Deafness is a very aggrieved situation, and it was especially so in ancient times, but it is today as well. Uh, Most of us would think that uh, blindness is a more severe condition than deafness, but in fact, those with the latter will tell you otherwise. Kent Hughes explains the blind do not suffer the social pain and the stigma that that the deaf do experience. The deaf see the gawking, impatient stares of those who are not aware of their condition. Well, deaf people are often looked upon as being stupid, very cruelly so, because they can't understand. And, and then often it's the case that not having heard, particularly if they've never heard, it's very hard for a deaf person to speak. Bless those people who, who work with these things. But it's a very difficult thing. And in this man's case, it seems there was another physical impediment that he could not speak. And, and, and it, make, make them, it made them excluded from society. People treated them with contempt. Uh, we, we call the, the word for someone who can't speak is that they are dumb. And that word has been taken to mean stupid. It's, it's a cruel thing. They're, they're not stupid. But because of their presentation, their inability to understand or communicate... They are treated that way in a world that is cruel. Well, what a blessing it was then for this deaf and mute man to be brought before Jesus. Verse 33 shows that Jesus took him aside from the crowd privately. And so Jesus is going to minister to him in a private way, not just not for public consumption. He's going to minister to him. And it, it reminds us, as we see what he does with this man, that we are to show compassion on afflicted people. We're to consider not only the outward circumstances, but the inward suffering as we look with God's grace uh, for those who bear the marks of a fallen world. Now, so far as we know, the only witnesses to what happens next are the disciples. And throughout this portion of, as we said, of Jesus' ministry, he's training the disciples. And so we'll see this again in chapter 8. 
And so he intends not only to heal the man, but to do so in a way that will be instructive to his disciples about important aspects of Christian ministry. And in this way, it's a valuable uh, example for us. William Barclay uh, points out maybe the main point that the personal matter, the compassion that Jesus gave to him, Barclay says Jesus did not consider the man merely a case, but he considered him as an individual. Well, let's look at the text and we'll see how this works out, this individual care. Now, first in verse 33, we have, dare I say, an unusual procedure. The man is not able to hear, he's not able to speak. So what Jesus does is he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, he touched his tongue. It seems like an unusual thing for Jesus to do. And, and there's all kinds of talk commentary about, you know, the magical ideas of the saliva there's actually a story of the Roman emperor Vespasian spitting and a man's healed. I wouldn't give any credence to that. No, no, what's going on here is not the magical power of Jesus' saliva. It's not his technique. What he's doing is he's communicating with the man. As Jesus puts his fingers in his ear and he moistens his mouth, he's using a rudimentary form of sign language. The man cannot hear. He does not understand speech. And so Jesus doesn't do it. He communicates with him physically in a way that he will understand. Uh, by putting his fingers into the man's ears, Jesus was communicating to him, I am going to open your ears. By taking some saliva and moistening the man's tongue, Jesus was communicating to him, I am going to loosen your tongue. In other words, he was doing sign language. I think what's wonderful is he, to him it was not just a healing to be performed. Jesus labored to, commun to connect with the man, to communicate with the man. He wanted the man to understand what was happening because Jesus' goal was more than the alleviation of his physical condition. Well, it's always wonderful when Jesus touches us in our sin. And many people in the ancient world thought deafness meant demon possession. And so you wouldn't touch someone like that. But here again, Jesus touches us in our lost condition and he saves us. Well, he first reveals in this way what he is going to do. But go to verse 37, 34. He also tells the man the source of what he's going to do. We're told that Jesus looked up to heaven. He looked up to heaven. And he's letting the man know, I'm going to open your ears. I'm going to loosen your tongue. I'm going to do it by God's power. That's what Jesus communicates to him. And that was absolutely true. We don't know, but you wonder, if the man resented God? Many people do in that kind of situation. Did he blame God? Jesus tells what we need to hear. God is not the problem. Sin is the problem. God is the answer. And it's going to be by the power of heaven that Jesus is going to promote, perform this miracle. Now, the other reason Jesus looked to heaven, and we see him consistently do this, you saw it in the feeding of the 5,000, remember? He took the loaves and fish and he lifted his eyes to heaven, is that it was by God's power that this miracle was going to be performed. And so Jesus is praying. He's speaking, he's appealing to God for the power of heaven. Well, what an important example that is for us. Kent Hughes points out that Jesus look upward into heaven in the midst of busy hands-on ministry is a powerful message to those of us who lead active Christian lives. Now, the powerful message is we must not forget to pray. 
And yet, is that not the very thing we are prone to do? You're a Christian parent, and you're, you're so you're wearing yourself out for your children, and you're you're correcting them, and you're you're you're, pre, you're reading scripture, you're praying for them, you're you're teaching them, you're training them, you're busying yourself. But don't forget to pray. The we don't want to say this is more important than that, but prayer is essential. And the reason it's essential is the things that you aim for in your children, you can't provide, but he can. And it's by the power of heaven that Jesus performs a miracle. My friends, every time one of our children comes to faith, it's a miracle. It's a supernatural event by which God overcomes the power of sin. We need to be praying for it. Oh, we need to pray far more than we are prone to do. I often think of James 4 verse 2. You do not have because you do not pray. And my friends, let that not be said of us, but it is said of us. Why? Because we're busy and we, we're, we're self-reliant. We're, we're, we're technique-oriented. No, no, no. For the things of the kingdom of Christ, we need, we need the power of God and God alone. That doesn't relieve us of our duties. We have things we have to do. But God must supply the power. And for this, we must pray. We have so many things that we ought to be praying for. We need to be praying with thanks to God. Are you regularly taking stock of even the day and saying, Lord, I I receive these blessings and they come from your hand. I want to thank you for it. And adoring him, we need to be praying about our own spiritual condition. You and I have a lot of work to be done in our lives, and it's serious business. We, we affect other people. We ought to be praying about our, if you don't know what your prevailing sin is, ask your spouse. If you don't have a spouse, ask your siblings. You know, People around you know. And why should you and I remain the people we are? Why should we not have the power of Christ transform us? We need to be praying about that. And yes, laboring about it. But we need it's only God who can do it. But he will do it. We should be praying about that. We should be praying in detail for our children and for other people we love and particularly for the lost, right? Uh, neighbors, family members, co-workers, we need to be praying for God to do what only he can do to open up their ears and to loosen their tongues by the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Oh, please be praying for the ministry of our church. As you see the apostles do, pray for me, the apostle Paul says, that God would give me an open door, that I would have boldness to speak, but I ought to speak the whole work of Christ is performed by God's answer to the prayers of his people. Now, the next thing he communicated to the the deaf, mute man, I think is particularly wonderful. And when you read over verse 34, you may not notice it. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. He sighed. And looking up to heaven, then Jesus sighed. What does that mean? It means that Jesus opened himself up. He opened up before the man. I think it was, on the one hand, a communication. I want you to know that what I'm going to do, I'm going to do it out of compassion and mercy. Jesus sighed. He looked upon the man. Jesus understood in a way far more than we would ever understand. But he understood the sorrow, the suffering, the affliction. And he was inwardly grieved. He showed the emotions because the emotions were there. He had love and compassion for the man. Of course, his sigh was more than about that man. It was a sigh of the creator for the suffering creation and for the creature. It's a sigh of God who who loves and has compassion on those who are weary. God sees the effects of the fall and of sin, and he is grieved. Jesus sighed. What would that have meant to this man? And Jesus doesn't, of course, his friends said, Jesus, all you got to do is put your hands on him. Take three minutes. 
And he says, no, 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 I'm going I'm to connect with him. I'm going to communicate with him. I'm going to show him my love and compassion. What Jesus did is a model for us. I think of a story of a man. He was an architect, successful architect in the 1960s. That was a very turbulent time. And, and he just dropped out. He couldn't take it anymore. And he, he went to Europe and he got connected with Francis Schaeffer, that famous Christian apologist. And he ended up at Labrie. That was the retreat center that Schaeffer had in Switzerland. And Schaeffer's this great intellect. If you ever read Schaeffer, he's an amazing apologist. And his knowledge of philosophy and art and culture is staggering. But when the man talked about his experience there, a friend of him said, so if you become a Christian, he says, well, I've been hanging out with Francis Schaeffer. And the guy says, uh, uh, well, have you believed? He says, I'm not. I'm still thinking about it. I haven't yet decided if the Christian truths he's teaching me are actually true, but I have decided that that man loves me. And he has connected with me, and he has shown compassion to me. I don't know the end of the story, but I'll be, I won't be surprised if he came to saving faith Well, we are to have the compassion of Jesus, and we're to know that Jesus has that compassion for us. I love these little statements here in Mark 7, it's he sighed. Uh, And uh, at the end, towards the end of this gospel, you'll have Jesus. He's on the way to Jerusalem to be crucified, so you'd think he'd have a lot on his mind. And he's passing through Jericho, and there's a man named Blind Bartimaeus, and there's this big crowd, and as Jesus is blowing through Jericho, he hears the word, Son of David, have mercy on me. And you have this little statement, Jesus stopped. I love that. I love that line. It reminds me that when I pray to him, particularly when I'm in anguish or need or in frustration, and, and he's a little busy, after all, being sovereign of all things and upholding all things by the word of his power, praying for the... And yet, when you pray, Jesus stops. Jesus sighed. Jesus stopped. Of course, my favorite is Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. I love John eleven thirty five because Jesus knows he has the answer. I mean, is that Lazarus is dead. Jesus goes to the graveside. His sisters are grieving there. Jesus is going to raise him from the dead in about three minutes. But he stands at the grave, and the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Oh, the emotional life of our Lord. Jesus wept. Jesus stopped. Jesus sighed. Your Savior has compassion on you. He hears you. He cares about you. The ministry that he does is a ministry of love out of care for your word. And then finally, Jesus spoke. And it was by the word that the miracle takes place. The word of command, Mark writes, Jesus said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Now, that's an Aramaic word. Now, what I find so interesting is that Mark's writing this late 50s, probably early 60s AD, 30-some years later. He's getting it secondhand from probably Simon Peter. And yet the word itself was remembered. I mean, you can think of Simon Peter go, oh, yeah, and then Jesus, he, he, he sighed, and then he spoke. In fact, I remember the word. What's being said there is that the word of God has power to save the word of Jesus Christ carries a command, Ephatha, be opened, and the man's mouth was opened. That's why the word of God is a sword of the spirit, and the, the weapon 
by which Christ's conquest takes place is his word. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? Through the living and abiding word of God. Everything that we do, all of our prayers, the love and compassion, it's all directed to the words. The, the word of Christ, the word of God, proclaimed and witnessed, armed with prayer, fortified by loving concern, and Jesus saves by the power of his word. What a portrait we have here of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because when Jesus spoke his word, verse 35, the man's ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Oh, God wants us to hear him. God wants us to understand his word. He he wants us to speak in faith and praise and witness. It's a portrait of what Jesus does by his mighty grace, centered on his word. Now, as we consider the remarkable healing of this deaf and mute man, we, we, we realize that there's an analogy going on because what's happening with this deaf and mute man who is, who's, uh, who's delivered is a picture of what's happening spiritually with the disciples. Now, I've emphasized that this is a long sojourn, maybe eight months out of Jesus' ministry. Eight months out of three years is a big commitment. And during that time, Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand, and they're not, they're not hearing him. They don't get it. They're not speaking. Their ears and their mouths are not yet set free from unbelief and, and, and sin. Even in chapter 8, where Jesus as a preview. Uh, he's going to feed another large group of people, this time 4,000 4, people. And at the end of doing the exact same thing he did a couple of chapters earlier, at the end the disciples are going, how did he do that? And Jesus says to them, are you so dull of heart? Are you so hardened of heart? Having ears, do you not hear? That's what he says to them. And this shows us what Jesus is doing. What, what he did for this man is what he was doing in the discipleship ministry with these 12 men, he wanted them to, under, to come to faith. And that faith to come to understanding and that their mouths would be useful to him. And, and you ask yourself, what's God doing in my life? Well, I, I, I don't have a prophetic gift to give you all the details of what God is doing in your life. But I can know biblically that God wants you to hear. Do we hear the voice of God? Do we, do we hear the word of God? Do we understand it? Are our lives living as if we are people to whom God speaks? Or do we live like deaf people? You know, on Sunday morning, maybe certain devotional times, I'm all for those. Uh, we hear his voice, but the rest of the time it's like God is not speaking. What God is doing in your life is he's saying, I want you to hear my voice. And I want to train your tongue to speak. Don't forget that Jesus knows what is coming. He knows there's a crisis coming. He knows the cross is around the corner and down the road. And they need this time of being strengthened in their face. I wonder what God knows that is coming down your path. There's crises. There's trials. Maybe there is persecution in in an unusual way for us coming down the road. What will we need? We will need to understand the word of God. And have trained, we have been trained by Christ for the use of our tongues. Well, Mark's account concludes with Jesus' typical admonition for those who'd seen the changes in the man's life that they were not to publicize the event. Verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one. Now, why? Well, we've, been, we've discovered this, discussed this before. On the one hand, he doesn't want to be misrepresented. He's really not a healer. I mean, he is a healer. That's not why he came. 
He came, he's the Savior, he's the Messiah. And I think on the one hand, he doesn't want the, the, the understandable enthusiasm about the healings themselves to, to corrupt the understanding of his ministry. Mainly, though, he is avoiding that confrontation that these miracles are provoking with the religious authorities. It's going to happen. But it's going to happen on his timetable, and so he tells them not to tell others. But it was all to no avail. Verse 36 and 37, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Well, my friends, truer words were never spoken. And he has done all things well. We think of what Jesus did on this occasion. What, a, what an amazing thing he did. Doesn't, this doesn't happen. He did it. The, the way he did it, oh, he did it so well. The effects of it, he has done this healing very well. He did what no one else could do. And the people were astonished and they spread the news. Now, as Mark writes this acclamation, there's little doubt, though, that he wants us to connect this miracle, this well-done thing, with the greater well-done thing Jesus has done in his redemptive ministry. And Mark does so by dropping a clue in the text. And he does so by using the Greek word magilalos to refer to the man with a speech impediment. You go, what's the big deal about magilalos? It's an unusual word that is found nowhere else in the New Testament, nowhere else in the Old Testament except the Greek translation of Isaiah 35, verse 6. Remember, the apostles used, the, they had a translated Old Testament they used. It was the Greek version. And in the Greek of Isaiah 35, verse 6, we, he is, we are told that a Savior is going to come. And he's going to allow the magilalos, those, the deaf, the, the mute man, he's going to enable him to speak. Now, if you ask the, 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 the evangelist Mark, what's your favorite book of the Bible? you would think he would say, well, you know, Mark. But he doesn't. He wouldn't say that. He would say, my favorite book of the Bible is Isaiah. In a really a, a wonderful way, his whole theological grid is shaped by the prophecies of Isaiah. And a lot of his burden is to show us that Jesus is the one that the prophet Isaiah was speaking about. He, he has fulfilled in an incredible way all those things that Isaiah said he would do. And, and this is who he is. And, and to do that in this case, he uses this word that appears only in Isaiah 35, verse 6. Now, Isaiah 34 is a prophecy of wrath and doom. The people, have the covenant people have betrayed God. They violated his law. They've broken covenant. And the land is going to suffer. Now, we studied Jeremiah. We've seen how that happened. And he says it's going to be a haunt of jackals and hyenas. It's a, and a detailed prophecy of judgment. But then he foretells that on the, uh, after that, in, at, the, at, the, at, at the eschatological future, the great day when the promises are fulfilled, he tells us of a Savior who will come. Isaiah 35, 1. Then the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Verse 35, verse 4, he will come and he will save you. And how will we know that he has come? Isaiah 35, verse 6, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, the magilalas, the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. 
And Mark is saying, don't fail to notice. But by the way, Isaiah says this will happen in the land of Lebanon. The land of Lebanon is the very territory of Tyre and Sidon that Jesus and his disciples had just sojourned through. And so Mark stands back from the text. He goes, oh, Jesus, you did this so well. You take your disciples. You didn't go the wrong way when you had up to Sidon. You were going through the lands where sin had scourged the earth. This land, a lot of it was desert. And it was pagan, and it's ungodly, and you took your disciples, and then what do you do? You reveal yourself as the promised Savior. You have made the mute to speak. You are the one. My friends, what an understatement it is to say he has done everything well. We think of Jesus' saving work. What a marvelous thing. Along with being personally invested in it, we ought to stand back and say, oh, well done, Lord Jesus. His virgin birth and incarnation, his perfect life of humble obedience all those years. Oh, oh, we need to appreciate the glory of his person and work and his teaching and his healing, his dealing with the disciples, his handling of the opponents. Oh, it's amazing. He has done it so well. But then you and I have a great need. Can anyone deal with this? We are guilty sinners before God. That judgment that Isaiah was speaking about is one that we deserve it's a curse upon sinners and we are sinners and there is no remedy that we can have. We must have a savior. We must have a lamb of God. We must have a sacrifice made that would cover and forgive all of our sins and Jesus Christ appears. And he goes from here and this road that led from Sidon to Decapolis is not yet done. It is headed to Calvary. And when we see him dying on the cross, him, the spotless lamb, him, the only person who didn't deserve to be punished, he was utterly sinless. And he offers himself that you and I might be forgiven through his blood. Oh, we stand back and say, not only are we grateful personally, but you have done it so well. It does not end there, for he conquers death. He rises from the grave. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. You do know that Jesus is not on vacation right now. What he's doing is he's doing everything well. He is interceding for the church. He's sending the Holy Spirit. As we pray, he's answering. Biblically, it's literally true that Jesus is praying for me. As I preach this sermon, he's praying for you. He's interceding for us. And when history is over, we will look back and say, he did it so well. And there's a final day coming. He will return in glory. There's a final day of judgment. And when you and I stand in eternity and we look back on the entirety of our lives, all of history, we will echo the words of these astonished people. He has done everything well. And when he caused the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak, he was merely showing who he is so that we would believe. Do you believe in Jesus? He's the only one. He has fulfilled the prophecies. He has declared himself. He arises out of a scourge Lebanon and he causes the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. He's declaring himself the promised Messiah. He's calling on you to believe in him. And then as you walk in faith with Jesus, are you discovering the truth of these words that if we look even while we're still living, we look on the affairs of our lives and we come to understand, oh Lord, you did that well. That trial that I went through, boy, that wasn't fun. I I wasn't asking for it. 
but I, I see what you were doing in my life. That, that, that prayer, that need of mine that you withheld, that burden that you gave me, that, that, that thorn in my flesh, as, as Paul will talk about, you were teaching me that your grace is sufficient for me. You did it all well. R.C. Sproul tells of Robert De Niro, the famous actor, in an interview. And uh, he's asked the question, what if you're wrong, De Niro? What if those Christians are right? What if there's a God and you actually stand before him? What what are you going to say to him? And De Niro very confidently says, what I'm going to say before God is you have some explaining to do. Well, my friends, De Niro has it exactly backward. It is not God who has some explaining to do to Robert De Niro. It is Robert De Niro who has some explaining to do to God. And that's true of every sinner. It's true of our whole world. He will have to answer for his sin and unbelief. But it raises the question, what would you and I say when we stand in glory, washed in the blood of Jesus, sinners redeemed by such marvelous grace? What will we say as we look back over our lives? I would make a suggestion that the words of these onlookers would be extraordinarily uh, appropriate. Lord, you have done everything well. You, you were all those trials that I had, those tears that fell on my cheeks, those sorrows that were so painful at the time. I see now it was your way of saving me. There is no cookie-cutter Christianity. Like you dealt with that man individually and you connected with him and you communicated with him. You've been doing that with me and this was how you saved me from sin. You gave purpose and meaning to my life and you've led me into glory. I guarantee you we will say in heaven, Lord, you did it all well. You know what the real joy is? That by faith, we, by faith, we're able to say it now. What, what did Joseph say when he what was reunited with your, his brothers? He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And let us be able to say now, in the midst of our trials, we say it not by sight. Oh, in glory, it will be by sight. But now it's by faith. What a blessing to us. What a praise to him if we can say it knowing it is true. Lord, in all my trials, with Jesus as my Savior, saving me, connecting with me, communicating with me, opening my ears and training my tongues, I know you're doing it all well. Yes, he's doing it very well. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his mercy. We thank you for his sigh of compassion as he looks on us individually and together. We thank you that he does everything well. And I pray, Father, for those who do not know him, people we know, family members, friends, co-workers, that your sovereign mercy would open their ears. Only you can do it. Cause us to be steadfast in prayer. But, Father, we pray that you would be teaching us that we are not forsaken by you when a prayer is not answered the way we want it to be answered, that when we have long periods of distress and anxiety, Lord, they're not good. You are working them for good in our life according to your word. Train us even now, Lord, to give you the praise and say, Lord, I rejoice for I know that you are doing everything so very well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.